bring me shelter I will not harm you bring me shelter please bring me shelter I will not harm you I would shelter you people would do anything for their families it could happen to anyone anytime somebody in France somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on that there are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict there are a lot of people who need safety it is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away what we're seeing is a number of people People that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees. I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 8.55am, 3CR. Good day and welcome to Refugee Radio. I'm your host, Selene Yap, and the following podcast is a recording taken at La Trobe University's Ideas and Society program, Australia and the Refugees Who Come by Boat. What have we done? What can we do now? This was convened by La Trobe University's Emeritus Professor Robert Mann. Speakers include Beruz Bushani, Julian Burnside, and Frank Brennan. Good evening, everyone. Great to see so many of you here. My name is Professor John Dewar. I'm I'm the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm really delighted to be here this evening to open this Ideas and Society event. La Trobe's Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, has been running the Ideas and Society program since 2010. In that time, the program has featured many of Australia's most prominent thinkers, as well as some new voices. It has made a significant and much needed contribution to intelligent discourse and debate in this country. But now on to tonight's debate. The issue of asylum seekers is complex and deeply emotional. Responsibility, morality, humanity, dignity, national identity, territorialism, culture, all of these collide in what is a raw, fraught, and often very personal debate over what is right and ultimately what we should do. Two of our discussants tonight are two of Australia's most respected social justice advocates. Yet on many questions associated with asylum seekers who come by boat, they differ in their views. And this is reflective of the highly nuanced nature of policy issues in this area. What strikes me is that the discourse around asylum seekers is still distorted by what governments have wanted the public to believe. Think of Tampa or the Children Overboard Affair and what they have sought to conceal. Most Australians to this day 
still have no real understanding of the conditions that have been experienced by the 900 refugees and asylum seekers who've been interned for the last six years on Nauru and Manus Island. What will be interesting as time moves on is to see how we tell ourselves the story of our response to refugees and to people seeking asylum in this country. But I'd now like to introduce our discussants for this evening. The first is Julian Burnside, AOQC, a barrister based in Melbourne. He specialises in commercial litigation. He joined the bar in 1976 and took silk in 1989. He's a former president of Liberty Victoria and has acted pro bono in many human rights cases, in particular those concerning the treatment of refugees. He's the author of a book of essays on language and etymology, uh, including Word Watching and Watching Brief. His latest book is Watching Out, Reflections on Justice and Injustice, and in 2004 he was elected as a living national treasure. In 2009 he was made an officer of the Order of Australia, and in 2014 he was awarded the Sydney Peace Prize. Julian was also the Greens candidate for the seat of Kuyong in the May 2019 federal election. Father Frank Brennan, SJAO, is a Jesuit priest and CEO of Catholic Services Australia. He is superior of the Jesuit community at Xavier House in Canberra. Famously described by Paul Keating during the 1998 WIC debate as the meddling priest, he is professor at the PM Glynn Institute at the Australian <coughs> Catholic University and research professor at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture. He chaired the National Human Rights Consultation for the Rudd Government and has been a member of the Turnbull Government's expert panel conducting the Religious Freedom Review. An officer of the Order of Australia for services to Aboriginal Australians, he was the recipient of the Migration Institute of Australia's 2013 Distinguished Service to Immigration Award and of the 2015 Eureka Democracy Award. And when launching Frank's book, Acting on Conscience, Kevin Rudd described him as an ethical burr in the nation's saddle. And he too has been named a living national treasure. And we're very grateful that Baruz Bashani, who has been detained on Manus Island for more than six years, is joining us tonight by Skype. Baruz is a Kurdish-Iranian writer who holds a master's degree in political science, political geography, and geopolitics. He was writer for the Kurdish language magazine, Wiria, is an honorary member of Penn Inter International, and the recipient of several awards, including an Amnesty International 2017 Media Award, the Liberty Victoria 2018 Empty Chair Award, and the Anna Politkovskaya Award for Journalism. He's a non-resident visiting scholar at the Sydney Asia-Pacific Migration Centre at the University of Sydney, is co-director of the film Chowka, Please Tell Us the Time, collaborator on the play Manus, and author of No Friend But the Mountains, Writing from Manus Prison, which won the non-fiction prize and the Victorian Prize for Literature, at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards 2019, and it's available for sale outside. Incredibly, No Friend But The Mountains was written in Farsi, mostly through WhatsApp messages sent to his translator, Omid Tafijian. Finally, our moderator for tonight's debate is Dr. Madeleine Shiam. 
She's a lecturer at the La Trobe Law School, where her research examines the relationships between the global and the local, the language and the histories of international law. She has a particular interest in the role of international law in Australian life. She's published in several eminent law journals, and her monograph, International Law in Public Debate, will be published by Cambridge University Press next year. So as I hand over to Madeline, will you please join me in welcoming all of our discussants for tonight's, tonight's debate. Thank you. Thank you, John, and good evening, everybody. I also want to start by acknowledging that our event tonight is being held on the land of the Wurundjeri people, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And acknowledging that we meet on Wurundjeri country matters for many reasons, one of which is that it reminds us that modern Australia is founded on acts of dispossession and violence against the first peoples of this land. And this reminder holds particular resonance tonight because in discussing Australia's treatment of the refugees who came by boat, we are confronting ongoing acts of dispossession and violence that are committed by governments that we collectively have elected. So we have three speakers this evening and the night is going to unfold like this. Each of the speakers has around 20 minutes to speak. Frank and Julian will be presenting keynotes from uh, the podium and we will be interviewing Beruz via Skype. After that, there'll be a moderated discussion for around 20 minutes. And then after the moderated discussion amongst the four of us, we will open up to all of you to ask questions. Berries, thank you so much for joining us. It is a room full of people who are um, waiting to hear what it is you have to say. So we're going to start, I think, Beruz, if you could just describe for us the current situation that you and the men in Manus find yourselves in, the conditions that you're in, and perhaps also the effect of the results of the most recent election. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I would like to say hello to everyone. Uh, it is a great honor for me to speak with you from Manus Island. Uh, you know, as you are aware, uh, the election, unfortunately, the election has a big negative impact on uh, our situation. So the refugees in Manus Island and Nauru were expected that Labour wins the election. So because of this, that they announced in the uh, national conference that if they win the election, they will accept the New Zealand offer. So it was a big uh, opportunity and big chance for uh, refugees to get off of this uh, island. But unfortunately, so, you know, like the, the Australian people, we didn't expect that uh, the Liberals uh, return to power. So that uh, had a very negative impact on the refugees. So, so far, since the election, so far, uh, at least 100 times people attempt suicide and self-harm. Uh, but uh, fortunately, over the past two weeks, uh, I think the number of self-harm and suicide attempts uh, has reduced. Uh, which is uh, uh, good news for the, um, us because, uh, you know, what uh, makes uh, us worry and concern is that uh, the refugees were doing some something dangerous. 
for example, a few weeks ago, one of the refugees uh, climbed on an internet tower, so which was very dangerous. And also, some of the refugees burned themselves and burned their uh, rooms. So I think it was dangerous. But, but uh, still, people are, are uh, so depressed, and most of people are locked up in their rooms. So, uh, you know, our only chance right now is Medivac law, uh, which I think we did until November. So we have four months uh, time that uh, Sikh refugees transfer to uh, Australia. What I want to mention, I think it's important, and the Australian media you know, the, don't report about it, is that the Australian government, uh, and particularly Peter Dutton, is lying about the number of people in Manus Island and Nauru. Uh, we are 300 people in total in PNG, but the government say that we are 531 people. So I think, which is wrong, you know, we are 370 people. And among these 370 people, at least 70 people already accepted by America. So we expect that they fly to America in next uh, two months. So over the past two weeks, uh, 38 people went to America and next uh, week, another group will fly. So we expect that this 70 people fly to America in next two months. So now, uh, without the Americans, we are 300 people. 300 people. And in Nauru, uh, the number of people are 260 people. Uh, that 60 of them are waiting to fly to America. They already asked. So in total, I think we are less than 500 people in Manus and Nauru. But the government says that we are more than 800 people. I think it's important we acknowledge this because we can say that, you know, we can challenge the government that so far 60 or 70 percent of people in Manus and Nauru released, but the boats didn't come to us here. So the government is lying. So, uh, you know, I think we should challenge this uh, logic. We should challenge the government that we are not too many people here in Manus and Nauru. So it is the time that they do something for us or uh, at least accept the New Zealand offer. Uh, many people say that what I think the solution is ready. The solution is ready, which is, uh, you know, accepting the New Zealand offer and work under the Medivac law. So if they, you know, I'm sure uh, on next four months, at least 100 people go to Australia from Manus. So we will be... Uh, 150 or less than 200 people. So if they accept New Zealand offer, so it will finish. 
But the problem is that the government uh, doesn't want to solve this problem. Over the past six years, they have kept us here because of different reasons. It's not because of the boats uh, coming to Australia or not. It's because of different reasons. First one, I think that is important, is an ideological reason. They don't like us. They don't, and it's written to the history of uh, Australia. And second reason is because of corruption. You know, they have spent $9 billion on this exile policy. And I think it's important that people acknowledge this, the media talk about this. You know, it's a very important point that we challenge this government. Another reason is the uh, is the political benefits. This government always uh, put pressure on the labor and send this message to the Australian people that uh, are able to, uh, you know, keep the border safe and they are using this kind of words and this wrong language. So they have benefits, political benefits uh, on base of this exile policy. So I think it's important that after six years, people think about this, that the government is lying about the boats, the government is lying to the public. And another thing I would like to mention, the refugees was for people say that bring them here. And we should acknowledge this, that most of the refugees in Manukau Island and Nauru don't want to go to Australia, <laughs> want to uh, get off of this island. And I think it's important uh, because the government always says that, yeah, these people want to come to our country, but we don't want. Already we uh, announced that, we published some letters and people signed it that we don't want to go to Australia. So uh, just let us go, let us go. So I think it is the time that uh, our movement, our supporters uh, criticize, uh, should criticize ourselves, you know. I, always I say that, uh, so it is the time that we raise this question and we challenge this uh, policy in different ways because we challenged this uh, policy for years and years, but, uh, you know, our achievement is, you know, is not a big achievement. So still people are in Manusana and Nauru. So I think it is the time we raise some questions and we ask some questions from ourselves and challenge this government in different ways. My suggestion, as a person who, who has so about this policy for six years is that we should focus on uh, some key points. Uh, one of them is uh, $9 billion that this government has spent on Manus Island and Nauru, and the problem still is remain. So they wasted time, they wasted money, and the, you know we should focus on this. So just I wanted to say that we should challenge this government, this policy in new ways, which is uh, focus on uh, these two key points. Uh, 
dollars that they wasted and another one is playing with the Australian international reputation. So I think it's important. About the number of people, you know, we are uh, 370 people, so 70 people will fly to America, definitely. They will go to America in less than two mm -hmm. months. So we will become 300 people in Manus. And 50 people are waiting to get results from America. So their process already finished. So uh, we expect accept by America and fly to America in less than four months or less than three months. Uh, so we will become uh, about 200 people, 250 or 200 people in four months. But other people uh, were uh, rejected by America and they didn't explain why. Just they told them they don't want to accept you, you are rejected. So uh, they are not a part of the process. They are not a part of the deal with America. And we should acknowledge this, that about 50, 20 people of these uh, people with negative refugee status didn't process at all. You know, they didn't process them and they didn't give case to PNG. I think it is the first time in the history uh, you know, they don't uh, process people at all. So, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I didn't give case to PNG, and they didn't uh, process me, but they gave me positive. They say, you are a, how do you know that I am a refugee? Mm -hmm. I am a genuine refugee. They said we collected information about you in the internet. So, and I think, the, so it's so strange. So this process uh, was uh, completely, uh, you know, unfair. Uh, or, uh, was completely wrong. But now, yeah. So 80 people in Manus uh, rejected. You know, they are with negative uh, refugee status. So in Naro, I think about 170 people are waiting for America to get result. Uh, and 70 people uh, will fly to uh, America. So um, uh, about 50 people uh, uh, rejected. So, you know, I think in Manus, we can say that uh, less than 250 people remain in the next four months. And in Nauru, uh, less than 150 people remain. But still, we should think about since the election, 37 people accepted, uh, approved, I mean, 37 people in Manus. So we expect that more people, and you know, right now, I think 27 people are waiting to uh, approved by the minister. So uh, I think each months we should expect that at least 20 people uh, go to Australia under, under the Medivac law. So in next four months, we will be, PNG, we will be less than 150 people. So if they accept the news and offer, it will finish. 
So, but uh, we should wait to see that this government is willing to solve this problem or not, because they didn't want to solve this problem. And the interesting thing is that they have the results from the America, they have the results, but they refuse to give it to people. You know, so that result, and the government, I mean the Australian government has the result, but is playing with people because they want to keep us here more. They want to waste the time. So hopefully, hopefully they, uh, you know, rethink about it. And this time they, you know, solve this problem because solving this problem, it's so easy. And uh, the solution is uh, ready to accept that. If they want to solve this problem, the solution is ready. Just I wanted to say that. Uh, Beruz, one little detail. I'm aware of the various people who are being offered places in America, including one person in particular I know called Fahad. You probably know him. He has been offered a place in America, but his wife and children live in Australia. His children are Australian citizens. Are you aware of other people in that same difficult position who might, for personal reasons, want to come to Australia? Yeah, definitely. There are some people, there are some people who have family in Australia, uh, but, you know, I think most of them have sisters and uh, brothers. So uh, there are some, but they are not too many people. They are just few people. And uh, they, of course, they want to go to Australia, but they are not too many people. They are not too many people. And I think it's important that we acknowledge this, that this exile policy uh, actually separated many families from uh, each other. And many people in Manus are fathers and they have been separated with their families for six years. I think it's important that we acknowledge this. But of course, there are some uh, special uh, cases. So we can work on this so later. So if you would like to work on these cases, uh, yeah, I can do some research and get some information and put you in touch with uh, those particular people. Thank you. Um, the, other, the other thing I was interested to find out is we've heard reports in the news in Australia that since the surprise result in the federal election, self-harm and suicides have increased dramatically. What's the position about that now? Yeah, right now I think it's uh, getting changed. So the number of suicide attempts mm -hmm. and self-harm has reduced. Uh, which, but uh, still people are depressed and, you know, sometimes we have some kind of suicide attempts and uh, self-harm, but it's not like before. It's much better now. And uh, another thing I think I forgot to mention is that there are three uh, detention centers in Manus Island. 
So uh, they are going to close hillside, which is uh, a place for they, that they keep the uh, ref, uh, the guys. So they transfer uh, 70 of them to Port Mosby, and uh, you know the number of people in that camp are about 30 people. So they are going to transfer everyone, all of them, to. Port Mosby, and we are very concerned that they keep them in prison, in Bomana prison in Port Mosby. So right now, the number of people in Manus uh, are uh, 170 people in Port Mosby. They are in Granville Motel or they are in PIH hospital. But definitely they are going to close hillside in next two weeks, and then their plan is to close another camp, uh, West House. They are 45 people, so they are going to move all of them, relocated all of them to East Orengo camp. So in next months or next two months, uh, we only have one camp in Manus, which is East Orengo camp, uh, detention center. So. I think it is a big uh, uh, thing that is happening here. So they are going to close other camps. There is, thank you. It, it is a good time, actually. It is a good time. That's There's an, a deep irony in your statement, Berus, but thank you. So um, we're going to turn now to Julian and Frank, and then we'll come back to you. Hopefully, we'll still be able to have you connected with us for um, a moderated discussion and questions and answers. So is that okay with you? Is that a yes? <laughs> Can you hear me, Berus? Mm. I cannot hear you well, yeah, unfortunately. It's okay. All right. Well, we're just going to... Beirut, somebody else can talk to Beirut for a moment. We're just going to turn now to um, Julian Burnside first for his keynote. Okay. I um, particularly liked Madeline's... Um, Welcome to country and acknowledgement of the traditional owners. It reminded me, um, where, as you developed it, it reminded me of a cartoon I saw in a book a year or two ago. <clears throat> it was a, an Aboriginal man standing at Sydney Cove looking down at the first fleet which had just arrived. He has a can of British paints in one hand and he scrawled, Stop the boats. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Stop the Boats really started becoming a mantra in 2001 um, when the Tampa episode happened. And it's useful to remember two things about the Tampa episode. First of all, it was a desperate attempt by John Howard uh, to prop up his prospects for the election which had to happen in November that year. Um, and it worked remarkably well for him. But the second is that the judgment of Justice North in the federal court in the Tampa case was handed down in Melbourne at 2.15 in the afternoon on the 11th of September 2001, just eight hours before the attack on America. And that, of course, changed the political complexion of it dramatically. Anyway, Stop the Boats became something of a mantra in 2001, but then 
uh, in 2012-2013, it became uh, a repeated refrain. In 2013, you may remember Tony Abbott, who used to be our Prime Minister and used to be a Member of Parliament, uh, <laughs> really, really um, um, made, put great importance on the notion of stopping the boats. And of course, in 2013, the um, offshore processing regime was created. Um, this was this was uh, announced by Scott Morrison, who used to be a person, and <laughs> Scott Morrison repeatedly said, despite his prominently Christian views, he said that the people on Nauru and Manus, he said to them, you will never be resettled in Australia. Um, he, it's an interesting thing about Morrison. Um, Beirut was talking before about how our politicians lie to us. I agree completely, they do. And one of the most dishonest, hypocritical people in Parliament is Scott Morrison. He was arguably the worst um, immigration minister we have ever had, um, worse even than Peter Dutton, and there's a thought to conjure with. Um, and he repeatedly, in, you know, in Scott Morrison's maiden address in Parliament, he actually quoted from the Bible as to, to identify the source of his values. His values, he said, were loving kindness and compassion for other people, and yet he became the most, the cruelest and most explicitly cruel, malevolent uh, um, immigration minister we've ever seen. And uh, I think it's a scandal which our generation will never live down we've just re-elected him as Prime Minister of the country. Um, he is uh, at least in part responsible for the situation I just mentioned to Beruz of Fahad who is stuck in Manus and has to his good fortune been offered a place in America but his wife and his Australian children live in Australia and he will be separated from his family because of the deliberate policies of our government, which used to pride itself on its family values. Um, the, the, um, the numbers of boat people who've ever come to Australia are astonishingly small. We, we've been persuaded by our dishonest politicians to think that we're under threat of some sort. I mean, renaming the Department of Immigration to the Department of Immigration and Border Protection was a very obvious way of indicating what the government's game was. They reckon that they, by frightening us, they can get extra votes if they offer us protection. And um, the numbers, the maximum number of uh, boat arrivals was in 2012, and that triggered the move to offshore processing. The maximum number in any 12-month period in the last however many decades, probably since 1788, the largest number of uninvited boat people coming to Australia was just short of 25,000 in one year. Now, in a country uh, which is fairly big geographically, and which is rich by any standards, and which has a population of just on 25 million, 25,000 in one year doesn't seem like a hell of a lot. 
And so it does, uh, it does raise the question, where are we? That's the question in this debate. Where are we? What have we become as a nation that we are prepared to mistreat people deliberately who do exactly what we would do if we were faced with their circumstances? And as Beirut said, the cost has been spectacular since uh, the Pacific Solution began in its second iteration. It has cost us, it's very easy to say nine billion, nine thousand million dollars. That's a lot of money to keep a handful of people away from this country. Um, the, uh, the, the numbers at the moment by my arithmetic come to about 640 or so and in um, Senate estimates I think in 2016 um, the in order to keep what was then 872 people out of Australia, we had spent $2 billion in that year, $2,000 million in one year to keep 872 people away. It's an obscene waste of taxpayers' money. And I wish for many reasons that our present treasurer would notice that. Um, the, uh, the fact is that most of the people who've been pushed offshore by our government have been assessed as genuine refugees entitled to protection. Entitled legally to protection. Calling them illegal is just part of the dishonesty of this government. They don't break any law by coming here the way they do. They exercise the right which we have recognised for decades. Um, we were despite our small size at the end of the Second World War, we were an important contributor to Eleanor Roosevelt's um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights recognises every human being's right to seek asylum. And the, uh, the uh, Refugees Convention, which we accepted in, I think, 1954, um, links perfectly well with the right offered by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, why is it that in the last two decades we have as a country decided to behave as badly, as conspicuously badly as we do to people who've done nothing worse than just ask to be protected from persecution? Um, it's astounding. The The answer that is sometimes given is that we have to do it or or what? Um, last year, I think it was, Australia reached an interesting demographic tipping point. There are now more people in Australia older than 45 than people younger than 45. Now, that's got all sorts of demographic implications. We need younger people in this country. 51% of the world's refugees are under 18 years old. Virtually all of the people currently on Manus and Nauru are under 45. We need people like that. There is, there is a, a man on Manus who, or I don't know if he's gone to America yet, but he, um, he recently said that he is uh, a nuclear physicist and a mathematician and he's trying to keep his brain active and keep his maths alive. Two plus two equals five, he said. Um, the, the fact is that the people who've been pushed away to Nauru, 
just on 80% of them have been assessed by the Nauruans, trained by us, assessed as refugees. 82% uh, of the people on Manus have been assessed by the Papua New Guineans as refugees. These are not people who are simply trying to take a land of us. They're not economic migrants. They are people escaping persecution. It's one of the most astonishing ironies of recent Australian politics that a couple of years ago on Manus, uh, Rohingya men were being offered $25,000 in cash if they would return to Myanmar. And the fact is, I mean, everyone knows now what what is the fate of the Rohingyans in Myanmar. It's like saying to a Jew in the 19, late 1930s, here's some money, go back to Germany, you'll be okay. It's breathtaking. And it has got to the point now where many of you will recognise it's embarrassing, if you're overseas, it's embarrassing to identify yourself as Australian because the question will often be asked, what on earth do you people think you're doing, the way you're treating refugees? Now, um, if it's not bad enough that the government is lying to us in order to cover the ugliest details, which would probably persuade most Australians that what we're doing is wrong, um, the fact is that there is a simple alternative. You may recall um, Sean Hands, who uh, worked for five years with the Department of Immigration. He published a piece in the monthly in November last year, and... Um, he has jumped ship. He went to Nauru. Um, he says, I met a man who started to shake up my faith in the system. This was whilst Sean Hands was still working for the department. Um, he was essentially the same as the man I'd interviewed in my first year working with the department. His eyes were constantly unfocused. He was only ever partially present. I saw pictures of him in his life before Nauru. They showed a happy man, almost unrecognisable, compared with the gaunt, haunted apparition now in front of me. Nothing I knew about this, his past would explain his transformation. He hadn't been tortured, he hadn't suffered sexual assault, he didn't claim to have suffered anything particularly traumatic in his home country. The conclusion was inescapable. We had done this to him. We had so effectively destroyed a man that he wasn't just indistinguishable from the torture victim, he was indistinguishable from the most damaged torture victim I've ever encountered, and I've interviewed many. Now, that is what we are doing, and that is what we ought to be ashamed of, and it's what we will recognise, I hope, at some point, when this present lot running the government get turfed out. What we need to do is to persuade our local members that there is an alternative. One of the points that Sean Hands makes is that if we shut down offshore processing, it will not restart the boats. Um, and that's because there's a sort of ring of steel which is responsible for hundreds of boat turnbacks. Um, and the fact is that most of the people smugglers in Indonesia cannot offer um, uh, an effective escape from persecution to their would-be customers. So, here's an alternative. Shut down offshore processing for good and for all. It is outrageously cruel, it is absurdly expensive, and it is disgracing this country. It is ruining our reputation as a country. It is not what Australians ought to be doing. So, shut down offshore processing, and then assume, against all the evidence, that the boats do restart. Let's assume that. 
uh, and let's assume that the arrival rate rockets up to the historic maximum, 25,000 in one year, and let's suppose that becomes a new normal arrival rate. I would say if that happens, then by all means, if you think mandatory detention is necessary, then put them in detention for a maximum of one month. Use that one month for preliminary health and security checks, which is a reasonable precaution for any country. Uh, at the end of that month, give them an interim visa which allows them to live in the community and has a number of conditions. First, they're allowed to work. Second, they're allowed full access to Centrelink and Medicare benefits. Third, they have to stay in regular contact with the department so they can't just evaporate. So, for example, they could report to a post office once a week. And fourth, crucially, until their refugee status is finally determined, they must live in a specified regional town or city. Now, if you, if you imagine, if you assume for a moment that the arrival rate is 25,000 people per year, and if you assume against all the evidence that all of them stay on full Centrelink benefits for the whole time, the fact is that that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars less than we're spending at the moment locking them up. Furthermore, we would stop harming people and start doing good for them. Third, all of that Centrelink money would be spent in regional towns and cities because when, you've, when you're on Centrelink and you've paid some rent and you've bought some food and you've bought some clothing, there's not much left over. We could actually repair the damage which we have done to innocent human beings. We could help them, we could help regional Australia and we could save billions of dollars a year by the simple, by the simple mechanism of shutting down offshore processing and treating people decently when they arrive in this country asking for protection. And that I would like to say is what this country ought to be doing. It's what we could do and it's what we are. At least I hope it's what we are. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. We're turning over to Frank Brennan now. Good evening, everyone. The organisers of this evening's event have posed a number of questions for us. I dare say that our answers would have been somewhat different if the result of the federal election were somewhat different. But with the re-election of the Morrison Coalition Government, I will have no hesitation in putting a position somewhat at variance from my co-panellists, one of whom was a candidate for the Greens in the recent election, and the other of whom is a long-standing resident of Manus Island, hoping against hope to make it one day to Australia. Our gathering this evening will be a success if we can work towards practical answers capable of adoption by the Morrison government and tailored to ensuring that we do not have to face a fourth federal election with Australia's cruel treatment of asylum seekers on Pacific Islands being a backdrop to the electoral prospects of the Coalition and the Labor Party. I invite you to imagine the scene on Saturday the 20th of July 2013, six years ago. I'd been in Myanmar out of reach for the week. On the previous afternoon, the then Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, 
announced his Papua New Guinea solution to the increased flow of boat people heading to Australia seeking asylum. He declared that all boat people headed for Australia would be moved to Papua New Guinea for processing and ultimate resettlement with the guarantee that they would never reach Australia. Landing in Sydney, my first telephone conversation was with Paris Aristotle, the refugee advocate who's been an advisor to Australian governments of all political persuasions. Knowing that I was a friend of Rudd, Paris said to me, Frank, you are never to leave the country again without permission. <laughs> I then spent a few hours writing a critical assessment of the government proposal, publishing it immediately on the internet. In part, this is what I wrote. Since the Houston panel reported in 2012, it's been very clear that all major political parties in Australia are of the unshakable view that there's a world of difference between an asylum seeker in direct flight from persecution, seeking a transparent determination of their refugee claim, which if successful, will result in the grant of a temporary protection and an asylum seeker prepared to risk life and fortune to engage a people smuggler to obtain not just temporary protection, but permanent resettlement in First World Australia. With the rapid increase in the number of boat people arriving from Indonesia this past two years and the corresponding increase in deaths at sea, I've been one refugee advocate prepared to concede this distinction, though claiming that the line is often difficult to draw. The line could be more drawn more compellingly if there was a basic level of processing and protection in Indonesia, Malaysia and throughout the region which could be endorsed by the UNHCR. This is a work which would require a lot of painstaking high-level diplomacy and it definitely cannot be done before the 2013 election. I concluded, in the short term, no government will stop the boats unless there's a clear message sent to people smugglers and people waiting in Indonesia to board boats. But that message must propose a solution which is both workable and basically fair, maintaining the letter and spirit of the Refugee Convention and Australian law. I then boarded another plane and flew to Brisbane for a social event at the Prime Minister's home. Being ushered into the Prime Ministerial study, I was able to say that I had already published my view on the new policy. Rudd and I, being friends, agreed that we had our distinctive tasks and duties to perform. We had a one-hour robust conversation, which I will never repeat. But he concluded the conversation in these terms. Frank, you've got to do what you've got to do, and I've got to do what I've got to do. These enigmatic words I've taken to be the most insightful appraisal of the last six years' standoff between government and refugee advocates. Ever since, I've continued asking what are the ethical and legal preconditions for Australia being able to turn back the boats? Many refugee advocates continue to be upset with me and my fellow proponents, Robert Mann, who's here this evening, John Menadieu and Tim Costello, for conceding that any such discussion is theoretically possible, let alone practically necessary. Prime Minister Rudd issued a challenge to all refugee advocates and social justice groups when he appeared on national television in the lead-up to the 2013 Australian election, when he spoke about a people smuggler being interviewed by a media outlet, saying that this was a fundamental assault on their business model. 
Rudd said, the challenge that I put out to anyone who asks that we should consider a different approach is this. What would you do to stop thousands of people, including children, drowning offshore, other than undertake a policy direction like this? What is the alternative answer? We have now all endured our third election in a row when boat turnbacks and the punitive treatment of refugees and asylum seekers has featured. The overwhelming majority of our politicians and the overwhelming majority of voters are agreed that the boats from Indonesia carrying asylum seekers transiting Indonesia should be stopped and the refugees and asylum seekers who have been languishing on Nauru and Manus Island should be treated decently and humanely. The disagreement is over whether after six years of aimless waiting and suspension, all those who are sick can be given appropriate medical attention either on site or in Australia. A recent swathe of court cases demonstrates that when the decision whether to conduct a medical evacuation is left to Mr Dutton's public servants, the decision cannot always be classed as decent and humane. A narrow majority of our politicians thought it was time to insist that such medical decisions always be decent and humane. They remain insistent that the boats remain stopped with turnbacks in place. In February this year, when Jacinta Collins, the manager of opposition business in the Senate, announced her retirement from Parliament, she made a telling observation that got very little coverage at the time. She told the Senate, I regret the officials did not alert Labor when we were in government that boat interceptions or turnbacks could safely occur. Much of what followed might not have subsequently occurred. At the 2013 election, Rudd and Abbott had been equally committed to stopping the boats. While Abbott placed great store on turnbacks, Rudd thought the same result could be achieved only by other means, including the revival of the Pacific Solution, but with the added proviso that no one would ever be permitted to resettle in Australia. He negotiated deals with Papua New Guinea and Nauru and announced that no asylum seeker taken to those places would ever be permitted to settle in Australia. Rudd, presumably with comprehensive security and military briefings, thought that the conditions for legal turnbacks could not be fulfilled. Abbott, without the benefit of the regular briefings available only to government, was able to wing it and promise turnbacks. On his election as Prime Minister, Abbott instituted Operation Sovereign Borders. Many of us were troubled by the secrecy of the turnback arrangements because the previous year, the expert panel chaired by the respected ex-head of the military, Angus Houston, had reported that the conditions necessary for effective, lawful and safe turnback of irregular vessels carrying asylum seekers to Australia are not currently met. So, what has changed? We know that one thing has changed is that the Labor Party at the 2015 National Conference decided to accept the reality of turnbacks. We, the public, have been left still none the wiser as to whether Angus Houston's preconditions for turnbacks have been fulfilled. The pressure on the ALP resulted in a change of policy at their conference. Bill Shorten won the day, gaining an endorsement for safe turnbacks. His opponents, including Albanese, Plibersek and Wong, 
But Shorten was able to build a united front, telling the media, we've had our debates in public, the Labor Party really argued this through, and I'm pleased to say that they backed my call. Since then, Labor has been able to put itself forward with a bipartisan commitment to stopping the boats safely. So here we are now with a situation where there are still eight to 900 refugees and asylum seekers remaining on Nauru and Manus Island. And there are many who have come from Nauru and Manus Island to Australia to receive medical treatment. Those who have been screened out and found not to be refugees need to accept that the re-elected Morrison government will not allow them to settle permanently in Australia. Those from Iran who have been found not to be refugees cannot be returned home by force. They need to choose to return home. Those who have been found to be refugees should be resettled promptly either in the United States or in New Zealand. There are no other practical options. Australia should stop pressuring Nauru and New Zealand from agreeing to the regular transfer of 150 refugees per annum. For too long, the Australian government has tried to have it both ways. Only last week, Minister Dutton informed the Australian Parliament, in general, the government's position is that Australia does not exercise the degree of control necessary in regional processing countries to enliven Australia's international obligations. So, what right does Australia have to exercise that degree of control necessary to stop the transfer of refugees from those regional processing countries to a country where a decent, durable solution might be provided? If Nauru and New Zealand, or Papua New Guinea and New Zealand, are minded to reach agreement on putting an end to a humanitarian disaster, what business is that of Australia? just because Australia caused the disaster in the first place. Should any of those proven to be refugees not be acceptable to the United States or New Zealand, then they should be resettled in Australia promptly, provided only they do not constitute a security risk in Australia. Now, some of us are citizens inspired and motivated by religious insights, and we're told that Mr. Morrison is one of them. So maybe things like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the call to a jubilee year might resonate. Others of us are very inspired by international law and some of the norms of international law as they are developed by legal academics. And they might be seen to be often just as idealistic as those of us of a religious persuasion. Others of us are not international lawyers. We don't claim to be religious, but we do have an ideal about treating people decently and humanely. Now, it's a brave commentator who suggests what makes moral, political and economic good sense to the Morrison government on these issues. After all, they were prepared to waste over $180 million prior to the recent election opening or reopening the Christmas Island processing facility with no one to be processed. And it would seem that this form of economic waste and bad policy passes muster with the electorate when it would not if the money were wasted so profligately on other government non-services designed only for mandate signalling. But let me have a go. Any government 
including the re-elected Morrison government, should see the good sense in providing employment, health and welfare services for bona fide asylum seekers living in the Australian community, having adequately resourced the non-military, non-customs part of the Department of Home Affairs to process promptly those on our shores who are applying for protection visas simply so as to extend their time in Australia on a visitor's visa, as has been made clear in recent days. Those who lie about the need for protection are not those who come by boat. They are people who come on visitor visas or business visas, particularly from countries like Malaysia, and then on payment of $100, know that they can extend their stay in this country by simply applying for a protection visa when, of course, none would be warranted. Any government, including the re-elected Morrison government, should see the good sense in allowing proven refugees on temporary protection visas to transit to a permanent visa after, say, six or perhaps nine years. Any government, including the re-elected Morrison government, should see the good sense in resolving the caseload of refugees and asylum seekers languishing on Nauru and Manus Island after six years and three elections while keeping the boat stopped, turning back those who are not fleeing persecution in Indonesia and conducting on-water assessments of those travelling from countries like Vietnam and Sri Lanka, which are not presently significant refugee-producing countries. Any government, including the re-elected Morrison government, should appreciate that the Australian Senate will not vote for legislation which would force children who are proven refugees brought to Australia for family medical care, including psychiatric help, to be removed back to Nauru to languish in ongoing existential despair after six years of waiting and in the spurious name of sending a signal to people smugglers. Those refugee children and their families will have to be allowed to remain in Australia unless a ready removal to the USA or New Zealand can be arranged. After six years, the time might even come when the party room of the Liberal Party will say that this is more than enough cruelty, regardless of the political advantage in providing an ongoing ready point of differentiation from the Labor Party. Failed asylum seekers whose refugee claims have been refused in Nauru or Papua New Guinea should abandon hope that the re-elected Morrison government will allow them to settle in Australia. They will not. I acknowledge that these suggestions are unlikely to be completely acceptable to my fellow panellists, but as we heard at the outset, we're invited here this evening to express robust differences of opinion. Julian and I have the advantage of having both commenced at the Melbourne Bar 40 years ago, so we know how to be perfectly civil in disagreement. <laughs> but I do ask my fellow panellists to acknowledge that anything more than this will never win acceptance from the re-elected Morrison government and is unlikely to win support from the Albanese opposition. Let's maintain our idealism, our religious fervour and our faith in international law and norms. 
but let's all commit to options with some hope of winning acceptance by those who expect to occupy the Treasury benches, and let's not hold out false hopes to those who continue to languish in Nauru and Manus Island. Thank you. You've been listening to a recording taken at La Trobe University's Ideas and Society program, convened by La Trobe University's Emeritus Professor Robert Mann. Um, you've just heard uh, speeches by Baruz Bushani, Julian Burnside and Frank Brennan on the topic of Australia and the refugees who come by boat. What have we done? What can we do now? You've been listening to Refugee Radio. Please stay tuned for the Latin American update. Remember when I was growing up If my mother got angry or frustrated with me She'd say And the basic translation of that Is oh how beautiful is freedom But where is freedom?